You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The earth is Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from Yahweh, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the King of glory. Amen. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 543 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. That was Psalm 24, the King of Glory, a Psalm of David. And in this episode, we're going to be talking through some current events items, as per usual, in light of Psalm 24, and how might we think differently about these current event items based on the premise of Psalm 24. So starting off, let's take a look at verse 1. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. That's an interesting way to put it. Not just that the earth is Yahweh's, so you think to yourself, Oh, yes, the the world, right? This planet, the planet is God's. But more than that, everything that is on the planet and in the planet and the whole thing, the full thing. So I, trying to wrap my mind around a good analogy, would say, I have a coffee mug here on my desk. My coffee mug, because it's a Sunday morning, has what else? Coffee in it. Imagine if I were to say that this coffee mug is mine, but the coffee that's in this coffee mug is not mine. You might ask, well, (laughs) whose coffee is in your coffee mug? And it's probably a little late, right? (laughs) It's a little late to say that this is somebody else's coffee in my coffee mug, because what am I going to do with it? I'm going to put it in my coffee mug and give it to somebody else or... They're going to take it back or or whatever. If I just pour it out, well, then it's nobody's, I suppose. But then we don't do that, right? No, we, we don't do that. You put your coffee in your coffee mug and your coffee mug holds your coffee while you are drinking it, you know, much better than just pouring it into your hands and then raising it to your mouth. Nobody would do that. Only a crazy person would do that. But what do we do? We have a coffee mug or I do. If you don't, I'm sorry. And we put coffee in the coffee mug and then we drink it like so. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. So maybe it would be fair to say that the earth is like a coffee cup (laughs) and all of the coffee, everything that you would say is the coffee of life on planet earth, the mineral wealth, the capacity to sustain life, all of the atmospheric conditions, the rotational speed and the tilt and the magnetic fields and all of it, right? What, What the core is comprised of, in what proportions, all of it is God's, not just the earth, but the fullness thereof. Every square centimeter of 
creation is God's. But the earth in particular, it's not just that the heavens belong to him. It's not just that outer space and the planets and and all that belong to him. But the earth in particular is relevant to our understanding because this is where we live. Maybe mankind goes out into the universe. Maybe we colonize Mars. Maybe we don't. I don't know. But the earth is, for the time being still, and for all of human history, so far as I know, as far, so far as you know, the earth is where we live. And the earth is Yahweh's. The earth belongs to God. Not just the earth, not just the coffee cup, but the cream and the sugar and the water and the coffee grounds and the heat, <laughs> all of that is God's as well, the world and those who dwell therein. So then, you know, the second half of the first verse, not even getting out of the first verse, there is so much meaning that is packed into the statement made, the world, right? So the earth is Yahweh's, the world is Yahweh's, the fullness of the earth is Yahweh's and those who dwell in the world. That would be the people in particular. That is to say that we belong to God. Now, whether we act like it, whether we remember it, whether we think that way, whether we perceive what is going on through that lens, that's the case. And there's a blessing that comes with being oriented properly, and it gives you a fresh perspective to remember that the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Verse 2 says, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And that is to say, it's not just the dry land. In ancient times, the Greeks, for instance, might say that this or that city was under the care or rule or protection or blessing of some lesser deity, right? Some lesser deity would be the patron god or goddess of this or that city. But the oceans, the oceans were Poseidons. And that is not the case. We don't think like that as Christians. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, every square inch. Now, if he subcontracts out certain responsibilities to us as image bearers, and he gives us tasks and then presides over how we exercise our abilities and what's been entrusted to us, if he presides over that, it still belongs to him. Even if, as some posit, God gives rule over nations to lesser gods, he gives those nations over to those gods from time to time throughout history, even maybe at the present, even if that's the case, the nations are still his inheritance. The earth is still Yahweh's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein all still belong to God. He is the owner, the proprietor, the creator, all rights reserved <laughs> and used only with permission. <laughs> so then we come to who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, who shall stand in his holy place. It's interesting because it's not just he, he right? Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Verse five, he will receive blessing from Yahweh. So there's an individual aspect here. The individual needs to understand that this is what God requires. Don't lift up your soul to what is false. Don't swear deceitfully. There will be a blessing from Yahweh himself. You will have right standing from God, for instance. He will save you, for instance. But then there's also a plural connotation in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So there's an individual aspect. There's also a corporate aspect to the kind of requirements and to the kind of blessing that comes with clean hands and a pure heart and being honest, being truthful, loving the truth. There's a blessing that comes, and this is not unrelated or disconnected from who owns 
the earth and the fullness thereof, or who owns the world ultimately and the inhabitants of this island earth. (laughs) But here we've got an impersonal aspect as well. So you have the immaterial and the material, you have the spiritual and the physical, you have a coffee cup and the coffee that is in it, but you also have gates and ancient doors being spoken of and the king of glory coming in through gates and ancient doors. And you have the imagery of battle and God being strong and a strong warrior, a mighty warrior coming in through gates as a conqueror. And what is that pointing to? It's pointing to the idea that those to whom the world was entrusted or the nations were entrusted rebelled and conspired together how they could throw off God's authority. And God, like a conquering king, will lay siege and he will win. He will retake, in a sense, he hasn't lost it, but in our comprehension, he will retake and reclaim what has been co-opted and what is being used in a rebellious, disobedient fashion from those who don't have clean hands. They have dirty hands. They don't have a pure heart. They have corrupt hearts. They do lift up their soul to what is false, and they do swear deceitfully. God will reclaim what is rightfully his from that type of person, from those type of people or those generations that act that way or think that way, because he's the king of glory and he will get the glory. Looking at some current events items, in light of what we read here, Andrew Moran over at the Epoch Times reports, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warns of calamity, global depression without oil and gas. And as somebody who's worked in oil and gas for almost 11 years, I pay attention closely to economic conditions relative how the oil and gas industry is doing. And here is what I observe. When oil prices are high, the economy suffers generally. When oil prices are low, the oil and gas industry may have to tighten belts, pinch pennies, cut costs. But the economy is typically doing a lot better because our economy here in the U.S. and around the world runs predominantly on oil and gas. Now, think about this for a moment. What is the underlying assumption concerning where oil and gas come from? Now, granted, if we're going to be very, very literal, you would say, well, oil and gas come up out of the ground. But let's think more metaphysically for just a moment. Not just where do we find oil and gas, but who put the oil and gas there? Did the oil and gas come from a corruption of something good that God made? Was the oil and gas that we are extracting from the earth when we drill and frack and produce, was that oil and gas originally a whole lot of organic matter, plants and animals and sea creatures and the rest that got buried and now they are decayed and they've turned into petroleum? Is that where oil and gas came from? A whole lot of decomposing creatures? If so, well, how did all these creatures get so far down there? If that's what oil and gas is, if that's where it comes from, we call oil and gas fossil fuels. If oil and gas is all old fossil material, how did it get so far down there? And for that matter, how do we know? How would we verify that theory without a time machine, without going back in time and watching? And for that matter, if we did go back in time, let's suppose we did have a time machine. We could go back in time and watch closely for how that oil and gas came to be in these deposits underground in the first place. What if, what if God put that oil and gas there underground, just like he put everything 
into place that sustains human life on planet Earth? What if God put the oil and gas there for us to extract it, for us to do useful, beneficial things with it? Not that that's all we can do. We can do harmful things. We can misuse it. The oil and gas industry is a dangerous industry because the stuff is combustible. It's flammable. It's typically under a lot of pressure. And so that trapped pressure, if it's suddenly released unexpectedly and you're in the line of fire, it can be deadly. If it catches on fire and it's on you, it can be deadly. If it explodes and you're in the vicinity, it can be deadly. If you spill it into drinking water, it could be toxic. If you're just breathing the fumes willy-nilly, it could be poisonous. You could get cancer or you could be asphyxiated because all of the oxygen in the atmosphere around you is displaced and you pass out and that's it. That's the end. But despite all of those potentialities, because those potentialities exist with literally any good gift that God gives us, what if jumping in a time machine, going back in time, you find that God put the oil and the gas where we find it, we extract it for a good purpose, for a beneficial purpose, and when we do, we are actually fulfilling something of the purpose for which God put the oil and gas there in the first place. What if? If the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, then the oil and gas doesn't belong to Satan. It wasn't created by Satan. Now, could it be a result of the fall? Eh, I don't think so. I don't think it could be. I don't think there's any evidence for that. But the way climate change alarmists carry on, you would think that this is the stuff of sin and death, that it's a necessary evil. But that is to say that it is evil. There's this underlying assumption that's never really fully explained, except to say, well, the burning of the fossil fuels releases CO2 into the atmosphere, and then that creates a greenhouse effect, and then that, in turn, is going to cause the earth to heat up, and that, in turn, is going to cause the ocean levels to rise as the ice caps melt, and it's going to lead to more extreme weather, all of which I would contend is nonsense. Could you have a incremental, small change to our climate? Yes. But when you actually look at the numbers, not the computer models that have all kinds of foregone conclusions baked into the calculations and are again and again wrong, as they have predicted in the modern era, doom and catastrophe, always just enough into the future that you're not going to wait to act until, <laughs> but then the prediction never comes true. And then they just extend out the prediction another 10, 15, 20, 30 years or a hundred years or 200 years. What it reminds me of is cult leaders who you hear about from time to time who predict the second coming of Jesus is going to be on this day and week and month and year. And so you should buy their book where they explain how they came to that conclusion and what you should do now. Of course, listen to them. And these kinds of characters have cropped up over the past 2,000 years. They still crop up. And some, they will predict a date when Jesus is coming back, and then Jesus doesn't come back. And they don't just hang up their hat and go home and admit that they're a fraud and a phony and just totally full of it. They do it again. They double down. If anybody's still following them, they say, oh, no, actually, it is going to be this date. Now I'm sure. But as long as you just keep pushing forward, moving the goalposts, saying it's in the future as the justification for people giving you their attention, time, money, political power, by the time that date comes, it really doesn't matter. If you've already gotten the political power and the money and the attention, it really doesn't matter if your prediction came true because you can just say, whatever it is that you did, that saved us. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that you gave me all of what you did because otherwise my prediction would have come true. But this isn't just dollars and cents. This is actually lives potentially lost or destroyed 
This is potential for starvation, malnutrition, exposure, disease, illness, mental illness. Yes, as hope gives way to despair, criminality, as desperate times call for desperate measures in the minds and hearts of people who are already in possession of or possessed by a sinful nature. And the reason why the very powerful, very wealthy, very godless men who think that they run the world, but it's on loan, are pushing for getting rid of oil and gas without a adequate substitute is because they care more about money and power for themselves. They care more about their own ego and pride and vanity than they do about the millions and even billions of people who will suffer and potentially die as a result of what they're doing to the economy. They care more about themselves. They care more about their own wealth and power and vanity than they do about the people they are hurting and putting at grave risk. Now, kudos to Jamie Dimon with JP Morgan, because he's right. It's going to be a calamity. It's going to be a global depression, a global depression, and that will exacerbate international tensions. That will be the upending of the new world order, the post-war consensus, unless you have authoritarian, top-down, CCP-style social credit scores and de facto surveillance of everyone at all times, facial recognition, being matched up with location-sharing data on your smartphone to determine where you are at any point, what you're doing, whether you should be allowed to travel or buy or sell or trade or work or participate in society at all, communicate with the people around you, associate with others. Unless you do that, what you will have is a great deal more global conflict. As the economic conditions worsen, countries will desperately scratch and claw and bite one another. And that too will lead to a great deal of human suffering for what? Because some very wealthy, very powerful men wanted more wealth and more power and they wanted to lock it down. Take no chances. Let's just lock this down. But here's the kicker. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So the world doesn't belong to these guys. They won't own it, no matter how clever their machinations, they will not succeed, ultimately. They might prevail for a little while, and it might look desperate for a little while, but those who have clean hands are actually going to be blessed. Those who have pure hearts are going to be the ones who are saved. Those who refuse to give themselves over to what is false will prevail. And that's important to remember Not that we all need to be stuck on oil and gas. If a better energy source comes along, if cold fusion reactions are now able to be stabilized and we can get more power out of them than we are putting into them, and that can be scaled, and that can be how we get our electricity and power our vehicles, transportation, all the rest in the next few decades, great. That's super. But in the meantime... We have to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is framed by to whom does this all belong and why was it made and what did God put us here to do and where are we going? What are we, what are we supposed to be about? <laughs> not reversing the created order. I'll tell you that much. The earth is not supposed to subdue us. We are supposed to subdue the earth. And so when we do, and when we do that successfully, That's not humanity going badly amiss. That actually is the fulfillment of what we were put here to do. We were put here to fill the earth and subdue it. We were commanded, our ancestors, all of our ancestors in Adam, in Noah, were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If that's what we're doing, and some people want to stop us from doing it, well, then whose side are they on and whose side are we on? We've got to figure that out and think rightly. The Billings Gazette 
interestingly, has a piece up from a couple of days ago. Keely Larson with Kaiser Health News writes, luring out-of-state professionals is just the first step in solving Montana's health worker shortage. Luring out-of-state professionals, that is to say that they don't have enough in-state professionals, and this is to say that they have a health worker shortage problem in the state of Montana. Now, what's the reason for this? Well, I would say, I would say in part that you have on one half of the state a very counterproductive way of relating to the natural resources wealth that Montana has. There's a very dysfunctional attitude on the western side of the state where Californians have purchased their second or third or fourth home, Hollywood movie stars and big business tycoons. They want to play rancher. They want to increase their profile back home in New York City or Los Angeles, California. And how they do it is they buy this ranch and they build it up and it's, poof, it is nice. Multi, multi, multi million dollars, sprawling acreage, beautiful views of the mountain. What they don't want is the sound of logging, mining, drilling for oil, producing oil, decreasing the enjoyment and they don't need it. They don't need that mineral wealth. They don't need that economic opportunity. They don't need that job. They're not going to go get a job with the logging company, the mining company, the oil and gas company. So what's it to them? As long as they've got a decent doctor they can fly to when they really need to get medical care. If they can fly to Denver, if they can fly to New York City, if they can fly to Minneapolis or Seattle or wherever, they're good. And then besides that, as long as they've got a decent supply of food and water, well, then the more rugged, the better, because that's what they're here for is they're here for that rugged experience to play cowboy, to play the rancher. And it's all just fashion and fake and a gratuitous show of wealth. And on the Eastern side of the state, here's the sad reality. And I know some wonderful, wonderful people on the eastern side of Montana, where I'm originally from. But on the eastern side of the state, there's all too often a very closed loop when it comes to opportunity coming in from the outside, in part because the western side of the state shows that outsiders moving in are not always bringing with them a whole lot of opportunity. The Western side will say, oh, well, we've got tourism. Yeah, you know what? You could have tourism and jobs for local men and women who need to be able to provide for their families. But as it is, the eastern side of the state is more friendly to farming, ranching. There's no timber over there to log, but if there were, they would be for that. Oil and gas development, salt of the earth type work. And when their tax revenues go to the state capital for redistribution, they are disproportionately redistributed to the central and western part of the state where the Democrats predominantly have crushed the economic opportunity for the common people, for the middle and lower income people. And so you have this problem of the western side of the state being economically depressed, but also expensive, too expensive. So it's expensive to live there. And at the same time, there's a lot of roadblocks put up to being able to make the money that would be necessary to actually afford to live there. And on the eastern side of the state, there's a hostility towards outsiders. And it's a harsh place to live besides that. But there's this thing that's been going on over the past year with nursing homes, assisted care, elderly facilities, across the state of Montana closing like dominoes because there's not enough workers to work in those nursing homes. And what happens to the elderly? I guess they go live with family or they're just out on their own and whatever happens, happens. But it's curious to me, I'm going to tie this in with the next thing because it's not just that. It's also young people having to go away to college because they're told if they would be successful, 
they need to go off to college. And when they go off to college, I've got a lot of cousins that have done this. They go off to college and wherever they went to college, that's where their friends are. And their friends are going to want to stay in that city as well. And now they're professionals, young professionals working in some far off city. And are they coming back to Montana where one half of the state is very often friendly at first and then closed off to outsiders, viewing them askew, suspicious of anybody who comes in with fresh ideas. The other half of the state could do with a little less of the outside ideas. And so far as the outside ideas very often boil down to don't block my view of the mountains. Don't create noise pollution for my picturesque getaway from big city life where I made my money. No, those, those young people, they go off to college and they never come back in many cases. But Euronews.com published a piece two days ago, the countries where population is declining. And it's interesting. They started off very first sentence. You know what the prompt is. You know why this is okay to be talking about, why everybody's going to be bringing it up. China's population fell for the first time in over six decades, according to figures published on Tuesday. But it's not the only one. Now, what is this? To some extent, I think this is trying to help China save face by saying, well, everybody's population is declining. It's not just China. See, this is also why even if the COVID lab leak, which is the that is the leading theory. Now, it was fake news and misinformation and You'd get kicked off of social media here a couple of years ago if you said it, but now it's the leading theory and everybody's pretty sure that's what happened. It came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But even if it was an accident that it was released into China, I think once they knew that they had spread it to their own people, they wanted to level the playing field so that everybody else would have it too and they wouldn't take any more of a hit than other countries. And so they were happy to let their people go abroad and not really disclose honestly what we were all dealing with and where it came from and how to contend with it. So also here with the population decline, China, if China's population is declining and that's something to be embarrassed about or that would hurt the prestige of China, something you need to understand about East Asia in particular is that face, as they call it, is very important. The loss of face is unacceptable, particularly for a country which is now as wealthy and powerful and has such a long history as China. China is a big country, lots of people, 12.5% or so of the world's population lives in China. And we in the United States, especially, thanks to Democrats in particular, have made China very wealthy and very powerful and so now China has a lot of face to lose. If they're losing population or their population is declining due to the consequences of the one-child policy, well then, we need to talk about how everybody, everybody's population is declining. So they point out in this Euronews article that many countries, especially in Europe and Asia, will see their populations decline in the coming decades if forecasts for 2100 published by the UN last July proved true. In others, population is already declining. Eight countries with more than 10 million inhabitants have seen their populations decline over the past decade. Most are European. Alongside Ukraine, whose population has plummeted due to the Russian invasion, the number of people in Italy, Portugal, Poland, Romania, and Greece is on the wane. There are many reasons behind these falls, some unique to each country, but they all share low fertility rates, meaning women are having fewer babies on average than before. Fertility rates of between 1.2 to 1.6 children per woman are recorded in the Southern and Eastern European countries. According to the World Bank, a fertility rate of more than two is needed to keep a population stable. And let me just say, it is not just a part of it that people are having fewer children. That's not just a part of it. That is the whole thing. <laughs> That's the whole thing. If you have people having fewer children for whatever reason, your population will decline. This is entirely about birth rate. This is through nudges 
and propaganda and mass marketing of a sort and pop culture influences and the decline of a value placed on marriage as the only legitimate context for sexual activity due to a decline in the Christian faith in the West, but also at the same time, a cause, a contributing factor to the decline in Christian faith in the West. And then the legalization, normalization of contraceptives, birth control, and abortion, that's why the fertility rate is as low as as it is. That's why population is declining, is because we are aborting our babies if the birth control doesn't work, if contraceptive measures don't work. Parents are told to plan to have fewer children because if they have fewer children, they can live a more self-indulgent life, a more prosperous life, a more financially stable life. They're told constantly again and again and again that children are difficult. And part of the reason that children are difficult is because we've rejected the Christian paradigm for how we understand what to do with children, how to raise them, how to teach them, how to train them, how to instruct them. Yes, children are difficult when you tell them that there is no God and to do whatever they want. And here, please have whatever you want and follow our example because we're going to be very self-indulgent. But then we're going to turn around and we're going to feel very guilty and say that everybody needs to stop. Everybody, everybody needs to stop consuming. Why? Because we've lost the plot. We've forgotten that dominion mandate or we've rejected it because we want to be our own God. We don't want to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. As image bearers, we want an unobstructed view of the mountains in a quiet fashion. That's our dream. That's our ideal, so many of us. Now, not my household, not my family. We are (laughs) doing our part to try and stem the tide of population decline. We have been fruitful and we have multiplied and we have made up for Three couples not having any children at this point. If three couples of about Lauren's and my age have no children whatsoever, we've got them covered anyways. But it's curious. It's it's so curious to me that there's all this talk of birth control needing to stay legal here in the U.S. The left is freaking out because Roe v. Wade was overturned last summer and saying, what comes next? Are we going to lose the quote-unquote right to contraceptives? I mean, what what's next? We're going to start having children that we don't want to have? Well, okay, how about let's go back to the part where you don't want to have the children. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Can we talk about the underlying economic and cultural and societal and regulatory conditions that make supporting a family harder than it needs to be on purpose? Can we talk about the modern-day equivalent of the robber barons who work themselves into government positions or incestuous relationships with regulatory agencies to make themselves fantastically rich through gaming the system, through the application of unequal weights and measures? But in our day, it depends entirely on the public, at least to a certain extent, believing this idea that the sky is falling and that we've got to stop producing oil and gas. We've got to curb our consumption and our production and our extraction of mineral wealth and our <laughs> our appetites. We've got to restrain those. It's an irony because the people who jet set around the world doing the most lecturing about reducing consumption are the biggest consum- the, the biggest uh, consumers. The ones with the private jets are the ones virtue signaling about how we need to not be allowed to buy internal combustion engine vehicles. And if we believe them that the earth really is theirs to protect from us, well then, maybe we would do well to remember that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof or that the world belongs to him and all of the people who dwell in it. Maybe we would do well to think about that. In other news, Wyoming 
House introduces bill legalizing slaughtering and selling of horse meat, according to some reporting by Anthony Scott over at Gateway Pundit. He writes, lawmakers in Wyoming have filed a House joint resolution that aims to legalize slaughtering wild horses to sell their meat to markets outside of the United States. Wyoming's new House joint resolution, titled Wild Horses and Burroughs Best Management Practices, looks to amend the Wild Free-Roaming Horses and Burroughs Act of 1971, which essentially gives wild horses the right to roam freely in the United States without being harmed. H.J. 0003 begins by requesting the United States Congress to enact legislation and make other necessary policy changes to allow federal land management agencies and agency partners to implement best management practices for wild horses and burrows by allowing for equine slaughter and processing for shipment to accommodating markets inside or outside the United States. Anthony Scott's reporting concludes that horse meat consumption is legal in several countries, including Switzerland, Belgium, Japan, Mexico, Germany, Kazakhstan, Poland, Indonesia, and China. So that is to say, horse meat is not sold here in the U.S., not legally, since 2007, but there have been reports of it being sold on the black market. Will this pass Congress? Who knows? But it's a curious look. (laughs) If they're saying, well, the the horses are getting out of control, the populations are just too much, and we don't want the meat to go to waste when we cull these horses, they're affecting sage grouse and other wildlife, supposedly. Well, then maybe an additional reason is because times are tough and we are literally talking about selling horse meat here in the U.S., And I suppose eggs, look at the price of eggs. Maybe it's about time we start looking at the leather shoes we've got. That happens occasionally throughout history that food is so scarce that people start boiling their leather shoes and leather clothing to eat. Hopefully it doesn't get that desperate here. Maybe it's already that desperate in other places. Maybe the global recession, potentially global depression, has already created a sense of urgency that other markets really, really would like to buy horse meat from the United States. That's a possibility. We'll see. In other news, former NFL DL Derek Wolf kills mountain lion that was wreaking havoc in Colorado neighborhood. Wolf, who won Super Bowl 50 with the Broncos, used a bow and arrow to kill the mountain lion. He's apparently being ridiculed, hated on online. How could he? How could he kill this majestic animal? (sighs) Apparently, the lion was stalking around in this rural neighborhood, and he did something about it. Wolf wrote on Instagram, he had already killed two of her dogs and was living under her porch. Nervous what he might do next. We hiked straight up 2,500 feet and down the other side, then back up again, back down the other side, then back up again to 9,600 feet. Exhausted, dehydrated, cramping, I drew back my Hoyt bow hunting and sent and sever broadheads through him, Wolf wrote. Then I had to crawl backwards down the mountain with him to get him to the truck. I fell 10 feet off a rock face on the way down, lol. Wolf, according to TMZ Sports, per Colorado Parks and Wildlife, said that he had a hunting license, did everything that was required of him in order to lawfully take down the mountain lion. Wolf described it as one of the hardest hunts he's ever done during an episode of The Drive podcast. Quote, I love hunting deer and elk, and mountain lions kill deer and elk, and mature male mountain lions kill the cubs of female mountain lions to get them to go back into heat. Wolf said, I feel like I am doing my part by taking care of some of these toms. It's not easy. Wolf emphasized that he took the time to take the heavy body back with him and also felt it was necessary to kill the predator for safety reasons. Quote, we're going to let him get away. He's already killing full grown deer. Wolf said he was hiding under this lady's porch down the road. She told us, please get rid of him. He killed my dog last year. Now, let me just point out again that if 
some people are outraged by this, they need to remember the created order. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So that's first things first. God made it. It belongs to him. Second, he created man in his image after his likeness and told the man, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now you could say in the beginning, if there was no sin and death, we weren't supposed to. It wasn't God's original intention for us to be killing the animals. And that goes for horses. That goes for mountain lions. That goes for all manner of animal life. So we should all be vegans, right? Of course not. Of course not. Because you've got to read on to what God tells Noah and his sons after the global flood. And what God tells them is that he is giving to them every animal for food. If they want to eat the animals, they can. It's not a command. It's not you will, you must, you should. So if you don't want to, that's your option. But God said we could. And so we do, even though it wasn't his original intention, he made allowances for it. And thinking in those terms, there's a lot that falls under the dominion mandate. Some things don't because we know we are directly putting at risk other people, but taking out a mountain lion that is posing a threat to your neighbor lady, that's fair. That's fair game. No pun intended, given that this guy is a former NFL player, Super Bowl winner, hunter <laughs> in the present. But the outrage online, insofar as there's outrage that this guy killed a mountain lion, how could you? How dare you? That people would be questioning, is that legal? Can you do that? Somebody stop him. You know, <laughs> that that shouldn't be legal. It speaks to a departure from an understanding of what the world is for. Who it belongs to ultimately is God. But then why we were put here is to be image bearers and to fill the earth and subdue it, to exercise dominion over the earth and everything in it, not necessarily one another in the same way, because as fellow image bearers, we have a responsibility to obey God in what we do and don't do to one another, how we treat or don't treat one another. But the idea that filling the earth and subduing it is somehow a deviation, like we've gone off course, that is a very toxic notion. It comes into play with regards to the irrational proposals that we get off of oil and gas entirely without an adequate substitute. It comes into play when you start talking about hunting. It comes into play when you start talking about how many children a husband and wife should have, a man and his wife should have. Declining birth rates are, in some sense, the chicken and, in some sense, the egg. The first book I read last year was Mary Eberstadt's How the West Really Lost God, a new theory of secularization, in which she posited that it's not just that the West has become increasingly secular and therefore young people are not getting married and not having children. It's also that young people for a hundred years have been getting married later and later if they get married at all, or they've been getting divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried. When they do get married, they have children later in life or not at all in some cases, or they have far fewer children. And historically, young people getting married and having children was part of why they got involved with a local church. That's part of why they saw the value in involvement in a local church. I would dare say when we start to see the population decline, reverse, which I don't know if we will, but if we do, that will be something of a sign that the West is turning back to God. And I think it will also be something of a cause for the West turning back to God, both end. But some will say, oh no, Christians don't need to get married and have children in order to prove that they love God. And I would say, sure, 
But we are so far away from the potential hazard of giving the wrong impression in that direction. The bigger threat is that we would come up with spiritualizing rationales for selfishness, self-indulgence, neo-paganism, viewing the creation as God instead of worshiping the creator as God, who is to be praised forevermore. We are more at risk, particularly with younger Christians, of buying into the foolish notion that we need to save the planet by forbidding marriage, discouraging marriage, forbidding having so many children, or strongly discouraging couples to have more than one or two children. That's more of the direction that we need to be concerned about. But if we would get back to the original command, the positive command, the positive mandate and mission that God gave to Adam and Eve, and then again to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, which he never rescinded, which in fact he reinforces all throughout the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, also even when they are in exile in Babylon, God says, increase in the land and do not decrease. He's talking about being fruitful and multiplying. And in the same context saying, seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. These are closely connected statements that it is good to do this and it is good to do this. And we are seeing how that can be true play out on a global scale right now as simultaneously you have some people saying there's too many people and you have other people saying left, right, and center, there aren't enough workers. Well, which is it? I know the answer. God's word tells me the answer. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.